0: The Raw Rugby Podcast
1: Hello and welcome to The Raw Rugby Podcast, powered by ASICS of Brett McKay. The Wallabies will head to France winless, but still on track, according to Eddie Jones. And Wales suddenly appear to be forcing a change to the narrative after their win over England the summer nation series your place for the biggest and best international rugby discussion is the raw.com.au australia's biggest sporting debate we just loved speaking with tony johnson last week a wonderful rugby conversation with a wonderful rugby person and the one that we got very engrossed in to the point that we very nearly lost track of time which is always a sure sign of a great chat and part of that chat joining me this and every week the co-host of the number 2 rugby podcast in Thailand, the number 4 rugby podcast in New Zealand and the number 1 rugby podcast in Poland and Austria, Harry Jones. Hello mate.
0: <laughs> How's it? How's it Brett? You look especially dashing today with your green and gold that? training jersey. Oh? Yeah, very nice. new
1: Springboks shirt sent to me via one Harry man. Thank you very much.
0: If I have a frog in my throat is because I was spending every morning last week in a cold lake in, in Maine uh, doing paddleboarding, And my paddleboarding boarding skills uh, were still uh, on the way up in the beginning of the week. So I spent a lot of time <laughs> in the water around a duck-like creature that is known as a loon. Oh. Uh, it makes a very strange sound. I will not do it right now because my voice will not allow it. But, yeah, that's Good. why I've uh, lost my voice. But I'm, I'm, I'm getting so it sure. back.
1: No, we'd be right. I'm sure it'll be fine. I'm sure. Be fine. uh Thank you for the shirt. It's um, still, it's still very new. <laughs> tag, gangster, gangster. gangster you. Yes. Keep, keep the tag on forever. Keep the tag on. Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> exactly right. Uh, we should say Kiera to our Kiwi friends. I think. This chart point is the first time we've been ranked higher in New Zealand than in Australia. So thank you, mm. Kiwis. We, we really we really enjoy that. We love seeing it. Powered by ASICS, um, the RAW has in place a wonderful partnership with ASICS, the official performance apparel and footwear supplier to the Wallabies and the superb Wallabies 2023 Rugby World Cup playing jersey is available to purchase in-store and online at asics.com.au now. Now, unless you're listening to this on Tuesday, August, August the 8th, you've missed your chance to have your say in the Raw's quest to name the greatest ever Wallabies Rugby World Cup 15, where from a list of more than 150 players to have pulled on a Wallabies jersey at a World Cup, Jim Tucker, Christy Doran, and I had a special podcast chat in which we narrowed down that long, long list to a short list of five options in every position, uh, 1 to 15. If it is still Tuesday the 8th when you're listening to this, then quickly, please... Head over to the theraw.com.au before midnight and you can still make your selection for each position. You can still find the shortlisting pod whatever you get your podcasts. And we move now to the naming of the Raw's greatest ever Wallabies World Cup 15, powered by ASICS, which will be unveiled in the days leading up to this year's tournament, which is now, Harry, only a few weeks away. Heroes and Zeros. I'm going to lead off here, mate, with a hero. And that hero this week is new Wallabies hooker, Matt Fessler, who was absolutely great uh, on Saturday in New Zealand, but who Eddie Jones post-match said was, quote, having a nice non-23 <laughs> breakfast on Saturday morning in the hotel when he got the news he was playing. And I'm going to assume he just finished the full breakfast, the full, with the bacon, the eggs, everything. So, the blood sausage. <laughs> I love the idea that there's... Playing breakfast and non 23 breakfast. I, I just I love that. So, and look, it worked. He's going to have to do that every week because he um, he turned in an absolute storm on the boot.
0: I mean, Eddie's very interested in diet and physique and exercise. And <laughs> I know he was talking about Jordan Pattaya's backside was on our pod. He was, he, he was. He was looking for the other half of Tom Hooper's body he's and now he's commenting on
1: breakfast. Yes, yeah, so. yep. Yeah. Do you have a zero for me? Uh, my
0: zero is intellectual inconsistency. Let us let us let us let us imagine for a moment the Wallaby fan that when you try to talk about Dave Rennie says thirty eight percent mate, thirty eight percent mate, thirty eight percent mate, and then you say, but what of the uh, historic levels of injury that that were eclipsed any other team in the history of ever? No nah, excuses, mate. Excuses, mate. Excuses, yeah. mate. What about at the very end when it took uh, England I mean, or France and Ireland to within a couple of points or a kick at the end on the road? No, nah, mate, that's a loss. A loss is a loss is a loss. But the same guy now is like, hey, mate, we're on the way. We're taking the World Cup. It's four, four tests, four losses, a very close loss to a very good team, mm-hmm. New Zealand. Um, but, I mean, it's just funny that there's no excuses permitted for Dave Rennie but mm. uh, zero and four, four losses, five cards, nine tries scored, eighteen conceded, average score seventeen to thirty-four, and we're on the way, mate. It just shows you what confidence and uh, I don't know, just the salesmanship, the mm. the incredible gift that Eddie does have yeah. to to make you believe, baby. And uh, no, I just would like them to say that they've already had a
1: couple of obstacles. <laughs> <laughs> And
0: he really was not doing the world's worst job either. Just
1: a broad concession that there were a few issues along the way. Yeah, nice and your, first, yeah. And your first
0: year, play, play the All Blacks uh, seven times or yeah, whatever it was. Yeah. yeah, crazy,
1: crazy. Yeah, allowable double standards, I think we <laughs> fans call that. <laughs> who knows, who knows. Anyway, let's get to this week's guest. And, and Harry's a bit excited this week about the chance to explore numbers and combinations and the numbers around combinations. And this week might just be the week where Harry becomes a spreadsheet aficionado. The Raw Rugby Podcast. We head back to the pod's Sydney studios this week where we welcome a man who has won the Super 12 Championship with the Brumbies. He played in a Rugby World Cup on home soil before moving into the coaching and video analysis ranks and ultimately becoming arguably the foremost rugby numbers guy in Australia, if not the world. Please welcome Harry Jones the founder and the director of Gainline Analytics, Ben Darwin. Ben. Thank Thanks, Harry. Oh, mate, great to have Beautiful. you on. We've Thank been you. throwing messages back and forward for years and um, it's it's only sort of been in recent times we thought, let's actually have a chat about this because there's some, there's some good stuff to get into here. I'm looking forward to this. Yeah,
2: it's it's because um, uh, you do refer to our work sometimes and so I sort of thought, you know, sometimes... Sometimes what you come out is on the ball. Sometimes what you come out with is complete dribble. And so I think, <laughs> I, think uh, I thought let's have a conversation and see, uh, you know, to to give you our view. And, and it's just interesting hearing you say that, Harry, about people's views of teams. And we're trying to solve that problem. Like we're trying to solve the problem of context, particularly for boards and for owners of clubs to say, hmm. okay, uh, is, is your team actually performing well or is this – Is this should this be a should you be performing poorly, and why should you be performing poorly, Mm -hmm. and to give some context to performance? Because otherwise, they just panic Mm -hmm. and fire someone, you know, and and off they go. And that new person comes in, changes everything, and then it happens again. Or sometimes someone will take over as a as a coach, and they'll do brilliantly, and everyone thinks, "Oh my god, the guy's a genius." And then you look at the numbers and go, "To be honest, he should have won more." So (laughs) I want to give. Context to the discussion that you're having
1: is—is is it a, is it an interesting discussion when you do have when you do touch on topics like that and you say, you know, actually you should be winning more, or actually there's no there's no there's no surprise at all that you're doing horribly. Like, is it, do, can you see the moment where the penny drops or, or where people realise that everything that they thought is actually wrong?
2: We've had we've had discussions with board members who've been not wanting to hear what we had to say for a long time and then had that conversation, and then they started crying during the presentation about the decisions they'd made. That was an interesting one. <laughs> or we, we had an AFL coach who we sat down with and said, you know, we know you won a couple of titles, but to be honest with you, you probably should have won a couple more given what you had.
0: There's, no, response, cry. There's no crying in the boardroom. Sorry, Ben. Oh, there
2: is. Oh, there is. <laughs> so so it's, the biggest challenge that it has is for people who've won and been very, very successful. And for you to yeah. say, to be honest with you, you've had an unbelievably huge advantage over this time. And then other, ta- other, other people who've been around a bit, guys like Craig Bellamy, for example, are just like, or Wayne Bennett or Aston Wenger, just like, this makes all the sense of everything I've ever experienced because they've experienced yeah, the downside right. of it and the upside of it. And they're like, okay, now I, I know this. I know what this feels like. And so that's, that's quite satisfying.
0: Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting, Ben, like um, in the premiership in soccer, they talk about goalkeeper quality and they compare it. And it's impossible just to go with clean sheets uh, if you're behind a machine that never even la- allows many shots on goal. So they season the, those stats, you know, and they break down every single shot on goal. and they sort of the, the ones that should have been saved, the ones that might have been saved, and then they, like, rank that out. And then you can finally get to the best goalkeeper, who might be the one... On a lower team, who is uh, losing, um, but they're able to save you know, some of those. And that that type of seasoning of stats is so crucial in rugby. Uh, for example, mm-hmm. missed tackles. I mean, if Peter Stefft-de-Toy is missing tackles upfield behind your backs, uh, sowing mayhem. That's a good miss tackle, uh, on, and not, it's not a good tackle when you're on the goal line and you know and you just mm-hmm. let someone run in. How do you do that? How do you? How have you sort of? looked behind the numbers to make them have context.
2: <clears throat> For us, I mean, and, and a great example of that is Dick Phipps of the Rebels, I think, had the worst defense. And it became, a, you know, I'm a big one about about, about motivation, how it attaches to t- statistics, is that if you, if you focus on missing tackles, people stop trying to make tackles, right? <laughs> yeah. The second part was yeah. Nick Phipps had the worst defensive record of the Rebels because he was in behind the ruck that everyone was just going through those filler positions, yeah. so he was diving to make tackles and missing them. Therefore, of course, he's going to be missing more than anyone else. So, um, the the context has to come in the collective. What is the context of the collective? How is the team put together? What are the because you know what we what we generally tend to look for is indiv- individual skill differentials, and there isn't really in the world of rugby in the top ten there really isn't large skill differentials right. when you compare it to what we might call cohesion differentials. So, skill differentials might be 1%, 2%, some players, 3%. Where we're talking about 400% differentials with our numbers. So, that's, that's really what we're looking for. So, for example, if you watch the game of the weekend, Scotland against France, the cohesion differential was very strong in favour of Scotland. They had one disadvantage we'll talk about later, but, but, um, but you would say generally France having that many clubs should produce better individual players. Um, and a good way to look at skill is is size of your playing base and then the quality of the clubs. And that will say, well, therefore, Wales and Scotland and Ireland shouldn't therefore have much of a chance against England and France. But, of course, they do.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? It's it's interesting, Harry, you talk about uh, you, you talk about context. I remember, and I remember years ago, Laurie Fisher, funnily enough, friend of the pod now that we can say that, uh, telling me that similarly he was never too worried about missed tackle stats because... If uh, if a guy misses a tackle in the front line, but it does enough to slow the attacking player down, that the secondary defence can actually get on the ball and you affect a turnover, then the, then the missed tackle almost doesn't matter. So Ben, is there a is, is there stats that you sort of suggest to people that you've almost got to look at in unison, or or does it not quite work that way?
2: So, on that point, for example, Rebels twenty eleven, I think our highest ever. Tackle completion ninety two to ninety four percent was against the Highlanders, but they put fifty on us. Right, we scored nothing, and they just went twenty five phases score because just how they played. Mm. Right, so there's it's huge pretty, context to that.
1: Yeah, pretty pretty hot Highlander side in twenty eleven. <laughs> yeah. This is when you were, you were the video no. analyst for them, weren't you?
2: Uh, for the Rebels. Yep. yep yeah. Yep. Yeah. Oh, they were okay by th- by you know by thirteen they won three games. They imported seven All Blacks. I remember that that was a big one for us in terms of our research currently. Um, the way that I look at statistics is is match data is fundamentally just another version of the score. Yeah. Like, I'm not – you know, like they did a study, I remember, in the rugby league and they were trying to find out why New South Wales never win State of Origin because, you know, they had that period of eight years. And one of the numbers they came back with was, well, there seems to be a really strong correlation between line breaks and try scored. Well, <laughs> no shit, right? Well, like, Well, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. So, So – if, you, if you're if you looking for correlation, the further you move towards correlation, the further you move away from causation in my book.
0: Yeah. And so what's
2: happening so much of the time is that we're looking at scores and going, oh, well, this team is doing, is doing really well. Let's look at their KPIs, how they play. <clears throat> and therefore, if they are winning, therefore, we need to be able to match that in order to have success. But you know, one of the things that gets me at the moment is people say, well, teams who are kicking more are winning games. Well, when you are winning, you kick more, right? When right. you're losing, you tend to play possession game. You're trying to get back up the other end of the field. So yeah, you've got to look at it right. from the context of let's not, look who's, let's not look at the winning terms of kick more. Let's look at it when it's nil all and who does what more. <clears throat> but even then, yeah. you know, like Crusaders, I remember when you had the worst line out in this comp, the worst defenses from the comp and won the comp. So there's, you know, I'm, I'm really not interested in those types of numbers. What I'm interested in is the the who is winning games and why they're winning games and what are the driver of winning games, but not in action, but in the construction in terms of how they're built and then how is that reflected on the field?
1: Yeah, right. So this is all very timely at the moment because there's certainly a lot of debate around the Wallabies and, and 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 Eddie Jones from the outset has said possession rugby is dead. It's you've got to we've got it we've got to kick more. We've got to, we can't be holding it beyond three phases and all that and we've seen the wallabies try to play that game but they certainly seem to be and I think we saw that on the weekend particularly the first half they seem to be a lot a, a lot more efficient aside in attack and defense when they actually have more possession so do you subscribe to this theory about possession or do you think that the wallabies actually need to keep going down this path of of kicking away more than 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 they're, than they're playing?
2: I say this as respectfully as I can. I don't care. I have no interest, yeah, right. in, how I have no interest in how they're playing. I have none. Yeah, right. What I'm interested in is what are the drivers of being able to do whatever they do well. Yeah. Right. So they're going to they're eventually figure out how to play the best they can, and Eddie's very good at that, and, and that's, that's his job. And if the Wallabies are built well, they'll be able to execute it well. If they're built poorly, they won't be able to do it. And he sort of said something along those lines as much on the weekend as we can't sustainably be able to play the way we want to be able to play. Now, whenever you change a coach, you generally get a level of underperformance because you've got a level of adaptation that's required with the new guy. So when Anthony Siebold, for example, took over at Brisbane Broncos, he completely changed how they defended. So for the first 10 weeks, even though they were well built, they didn't defend well because they were trying to adjust to the new action. So there's, there's three levers you can pull, basically. So you can pull... You can change tactics, you can change habits, or you can change the construction of the team, how it's built, who you're picking, how long we've been together, yada, yada, yada. Now, <clears throat> changing skill is the, the the hardest of those three, takes the longest of those three. If you look at tennis, the best in the world take a long time to reach number one and they stay there for a long time. That doesn't change much. The the tactics part is the second longest. Mm-hmm. You know, you can it, it takes time to be able to do things in a certain way and the players to be able to build that into their knowledge. So they, by default, do certain things. You know, like, if you play a certain pattern in training, that's fine. Then do it under fatigue against opposition. Then do it with your reserves on. That's when you can tell you're in good, you're in good condition, right? Is when your best team is on, your worst team is on, you can still pull it off. And even, even the All Blacks can't do that, or Ireland can't do that. Mm. So, um, yeah, it's, it's and the cohesion part can be changed quickly. You look at, for example, Gatland came in. Took, took the entire Ulster team and made that he's starting 15, won the Six Nations for the first time. But you can't always do that because you don't have that available to you. So if yes. you're going to build it between people, it actually builds very, very slowly. Another good example was 87 All Blacks went back to Auckland. I think they went back to 11 or 12 Aucklanders and bang, they had a World Cup winning team already in the bank. Yeah. So, and how each of the teams are built leading into this World Cup is, a, is, is on that theme. We call it... Um, uh, uh, the white bait. Um, uh, what's I'm trying to think of the word for it. Um, redundancy. The white bait redundancy, mm. which is how many people can you replace and still be functional, right? So you look at <laughs> and, you look at and what's, uh, and
1: what's the white and what's the white bait league?
2: Well, white bait was was that's what Stephen Donald Stephen was doing oh, when he was yeah, called right. upon as the fourth <laughs> yeah. number ten, right? Yeah. You know, white bait redundancy for the Wallabies in the '99 World Cup was Foley could come in for Kearns, no problems, because he was in the because yeah. he would already played with. Um, Already played with that front row a bunch of times. He'd already played with yes. those locks. He'd already thrown to them hundreds of times. And, and it was interesting because we said to him, We said to Andrew Blades, well, the one relationship we couldn't find data on was between Blades and, um, and, and Foley. <clears throat> and it didn't, I said, It didn't look like you'd play games together. And I spoke to Andrew Blades and he said, Oh, no, no, we lived together for a while. And we played club rugby together because we um... were only counting the Queensland games or the Wallaby games. So
1: <laughs> yeah, they, right. we had
2: a really good white bait redundancy. And so, yeah, yeah. you know, um, Ireland are getting better at that now. That's one thing. And France, France have that as a problem because they can't, they can't really go beyond their starting 15 and have a good functional team.
1: Yeah.
0: You know, in, the, in, the, in the lead up to World Cups and tournaments, often they have uh, players to watch, top three, top five. And I actually think it's more instructive to say, you know, let's pick the, your worst three. Not to pick on them, but say, my worst three is pretty good. <laughs> yes. My, my weakest links can stuff yours. And, um, and I think that's where like, a lot of times games are won or lost, especially in knockout matches where I can find your weak guy. You know, If, if you tell me that, you know, DuPont is the is the saver of rugby world, I'm not going to play at him that much, but I will find uh, Dante if Dante's not very good over a rock. And so I think um, that's actually one of the things I look at, um, Ben. And I, and I wonder about to what extent your ideas actually permeate into uh decision makers like you said you had board members cried so forth but i mean are, are clubs actually thinking that way or are they still thinking you know we've got three stars so we're gonna win or they look about you know the sort of crusader uh ireland sort of academy approach
2: <clears throat> so so that approach manifests itself in fantastic numbers like like the you know um in terms of cohesion um what i would say is the clubs who we do work with once you get them Addicted to the crack, so to speak. They they really want to understand where their club is at. But then yeah. you know, some clubs you work with at a board level, sometimes you're working with the selectors on a weekly basis. So one of the teams that we've been working with a number of years now, Saracens, for example, you know, one of the big things we we're really trying to work into was how can you deal with a large amount of injuries in the final? Yeah. Right. And so so how do how do you, you know, we we base some of our notions of construction of teams is Let's paint the worst-case scenario. So for a rugby league team, for example, how do you beat Penrith in Sydney? Or how do you beat Saracens at Twickenham? You know, how do you – or how do you beat France in Paris, right, with two injuries or three injuries in? And you build to that over time. Sometimes you can't – you don't have time for that. Australia doesn't have time for that. But um, with them, what was great about the final was they lost three guys, one before the final, two in the final, and they were still good enough to to win that game. And they were – the numbers were telling us they were good enough to win. But dealing with those injuries and having the guys to come in and be able to, to still function well enough, um, mm. uh, uh, that building that redundancy to teams is a is a really big thing.
0: Yeah, in two thousand nineteen, you know, in the, in the actual final of the World Cup, you know, the narrative for English fans was well, we lost um, we lost Kyle Sinclair in the first few minutes, and so ah, the game was gone. You know, we had Dan coulson and South Africa had lost two players not only a few a few minutes later. Lua Diago went out, the so starting lock, the lineout caller. Um, and, and the hooker went out. And so it's it's actually not that unexpected in a rugby match that you would lose a couple of your key players in the first yeah. five minutes.
2: I would agree with that, except what I would comment to that is England are not built in the same way that South Africa are built. Mm-hmm. England are by the notion of how they are constructed with their clubs. They're always built yeah. to fall over. They're always built to collapse. If you go look at, say, the game where Australia played them in 98, that first game, you know, we put 80 on them. <clears throat> And what's really interesting with that tour is every game they played after that on that tour, they called the Tour from Hell or something, they played another six games. Their defence improved by about 20 points per game. So oh. the next week they took on 60 against New Zealand. The week after that they took on 40 against New Zealand. The week after that they took on – they had another couple of games against New Zealand, Maori and stuff. And they played South Africa. At the end they lost like 18-0. Like they, they defended better and better as the tour went. But everyone just remembers mm. it for the, for the flogging that we gave them. Mm. Um, so, so England, the, the nature of England and France is, um, as long as they are built the way they are, from the number of clubs they have, it's much harder for them to build cohesion. They have to do it over a longer period of time, as they did with with O three.
0: Mm.
1: So, so on France then, Ben, how long has this team been coming? Like, like what have the numbers been telling you? Because a lot of them have origins back in that under-20 side that beat the Junior Wallabies in, what year was that, 2018, I think it was? Is this a team that's been coming back from that far?
2: I mean, I think that this team, in a way, comes from the under-success that France has had over the past 20 years. I mean, in the 90s, they were imperious, but, I mean, the driver of that has been the kind of rise of the Celtic nations off the back of the current URC format. Yeah. So once, once they got that, that affected particularly Ireland, once the Welsh went to four clubs, they started to improve. The Scottish went to two clubs and kind of stuck with an internal policy. They have dramatically improved. It takes about 10 years once that happens to, to build up. Yeah. But I think that sort of built France to a point where they're like, this is ridiculous, the lack of success we've had. So I think they decided to – to. I mean, one of the biggest challenges is do you take the under-20s even if they're not very good and keep them together? Or do you try to find a successful under-20s and keep those but the other thing that's affected this, I think, the most is probably Toulouse. A lot of those guys are at Toulouse yeah. together, so you have to have that. But they're not – I mean, there's three ways to win a World Cup. Harry, have, you, have I told you this, guys, before? My apologies. No. i repeat myself. So basically, the, the three ways to win a World Cup off every team that has won it so far is there's a minimal amount of cohesion that's required to win a World Cup. And if you're not in the top two or three, you can't win it. Or they have never won it before. Now the three different ways is one you 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 centre yourself around a club. So Auckland yeah. 87 uh uh 91 was was we only had two clubs so pretty easy to do. Yeah. You know was was Australia 95 was Transvaal um uh 90, 99 was Queensland we had nine Queenslanders but also a smaller amount of guys looked together a long time. And then you know 03, didn't have it. 07, Sharks, Bulls. 11, Crusaders, Hurricanes. 15, Crusaders, Hurricanes. 19 was actually he brought a lot of Stormers guys back. I think they had 23 Stormers guys in that squad. So that's one component. The second component is just having your national team together for a very, very long period of time. So that's more England 03. Um, And then uh, a little bit of sort of um, that 87 All Blacks, although there's some of the way for that Barbarians tour. Um, so you build, in, build into that group. And then the last part that you can sort of hurry it along is having 18 months of consistency. Probably the best version of that is the, is the 99 Wallabies and the, 90, uh, the 19 Springboks, is they basically just did not change the team for two years. I mean, the 98 game, yeah. that game we talked to where we beat England, there was only two changes from that side to the one that won the final. One was Kearns and he was injured, and the other one was Tom Bowman to David Giffen. Otherwise, the starting 13 were the same. And it basically, you know, they had yeah, changes right. during that period, but it was so ridiculously consistent. And I think with the Springboks, it was like 88% of the games in the last years were played by people who played in the final. Whereas yeah. if you look at 19 for Australia, like how many backline changes <laughs> did we make in 19? In, in
1: 2019, I can, I can tell you this, Ben, because I counted it. Michael Checker made 75 different changes from the first game to the last game in the 19 World Cup. Well, and in, that's in positional his, in, and personnel.
2: In his defence, they had a selection panel on from November of, Yes, you know, um, So my, my view is that if you have a paper bag choosing the team, it's probably more consistent than a, than a selection panel, you know. <laughs> <laughs> that's, yeah. the, that's part of the problem sometimes. You, you know, I know have Liverpool, for example, they brought in this sort of recruitment panel mm-hmm. and the panel felt a need to justify itself by bringing in players, right? And, and so it's sort of like an HR department. No offense to people in HR, but you know, sometimes they will make they'll take actions to justify their existence. Yes. Right. And sometimes you just need somebody just to, to stop doing something, you know, to to actually sometimes doing nothing is the most powerful. And and we have this chart and it's from Cronulla in um when they won the grand finals at 16. Apologize, I jumped yes. read code yep. a lot. You yep. know, the start of the season they were 13th for cohesion. By the end they were second. Mm. And they <clears> lost four of their first five, but they just they just did not make changes to the team, whereas, whereas another club like Newcastle Knights, every time they lost, they change. Yeah. So when yes. you don't make changes, you make the most changes to a team because it actually goes up in cohesion the most, whereas when you make changes, you actually, you actually remain where you are. I talked to a guy at a club in the UK kept getting relegated, promoted, and this guy said to me, I've had four different owners and seven different head coaches and 370 different players in this place. When is it going to stop? <laughs> right? It's just the same shit with different people.
0: Yeah. So, Ben, in this uh, Darwinian uh, theory of um, evolution by cohesion, um, it's, it strikes me that what you're really talking about is knowing who you are. And in a game where there's you know 250 split-second decisions behind rocks and in uh, sometimes very confusing melee's, uh, it really does help if you've got some sort of spine, some sort of core that says, you know, the, blow, the blue bull way to play is this way, you do it. Uh, it just sort of makes everyone around you and maybe the weakest players also feel like they know what they're in. Um, for me as a tennis player, I do a lot of doubles and I'm yeah. high, I have higher partners and we know that we play short points. It's, it's our mantra, short points, short points. We we don't win the long ones. You know, if you look at stats, you would see that. And I feel it, I know it, I, I know it. And so when I have a new partner, I just tell the person, "Yo, we're going to play really short. We're trying to have decisions. We're going to win or lose really quickly. But over time, if I'm at the net and smashing things and poaching and taking all the ball, we're going to win, right? And so um, sometimes I'll say, how do, you make a po- how do you make a point short? You know, it's that, that kind of, <laughs> how, do you, how do you impose your tactical will? And it strikes me what you're saying is the teams that know how to do that, the Crusaders, the Saracens, uh, the yeah. World Cup winners, they've been yeah. able to say... We're putting this template on this match, and it doesn't really even matter if you know we're going to do it because you know we're, we've been together a long time, you've seen how we do it. We're still going to do it to you. Is that, is that fair? Is that the Darwinian way?
2: Yeah, let's let's you know let's move away from that term, but yes, um, first, <laughs> first things first, like, like, who is the most successful doubles pairing of all time?
0: Uh, those brothers, Brian. The Brian brothers, right? I did have yeah, the twins. Yeah, right? yeah.
2: Didn't get on very well, but yeah. But my God, the level of understanding. So They knew what
0: each other were and they never had to use words. Exactly.
2: 100%, yeah. right? Yeah. Like the Ellers in rugby. You know, I mean, yeah. uh, it, uh, the, the question I ask with cohesion analytics is, okay, let's take the Brian brothers at their peak. Let's put them against Federer and Nadal. Okay. Brian's. Yeah, they would, right? But how many games would it take Federer and Nadal to beat them?
0: it get there if they play if they had yeah, to yeah, only okay.
2: play doubles yeah. yeah yeah okay so so there'd be a there'd be a, a, a understanding of one another would have to build they'd have to adjust their style to the wider court for example they'd have to yeah. get used to yeah. playing on one side of the court so th- right. there's all these different components to cohesion there's there's understanding of the system there's understanding of your role like you know when Kano played 6 he's fantastic when he played 5 against Ireland he was awful Right. Right. In that game in Chicago. So, so, um, Bergamasco at nine. I don't know if you guys have ever seen the footage of that (laughs) game. Fantastic. Yeah. So, so there's, yeah. So there's like, um, you know, there's lessons in all of this and we're just trying to look at all the data of, you know, if you accumulate all that data enough together, you start to see patterns. And I think that the notion of know thyself, what's really interesting actually is that the really good teams, you look at Crusaders, you look at Melbourne Storm, for example, uh, Penrith Panthers, they actually don't run a lot of patterns. They run a really really simple game plan, but it's so well built that they can adjust to however you respond I, I, yeah, I got I to agree. spend time with Victor Matfield and watch his seven man lineout, which is that kind of 3-1-1-1 kind of three, three, one, one, one that he used to run and it was the same line out and he just said, basically explained it to me. And he's like my god, there's nothing anybody could do against it because whatever right. you did, he was ready for it and he was able to adapt to it and so the really good teams don't complicate things. They just have this is what we're going to do. And they use your knowledge of them against you. Does that make sense? You'll know what they're going to do and you'll try to stop it. And you're like, oh, we know they're going to do this. And so you then try to do something to stop it. And then as soon as you do that, they just, take, they just tear you to pieces.
0: Yeah. And that's a big good example of someone who had, he had the line out under his control so much. Victor said that he would he want lots of space in front of him and behind him because he wanted to be able to move and adjust and and attack. Whereas a lot of other jumpers say, I want my, I want my uh, lifters right next to me, you know, Mm -hmm. give me solid. And he'd say, no, no, give me room because I can, I can sense where they're throwing next time. He
2: didn't think of lineouts as height. He thought of it as length, which was to me was just extraordinary, but that comes with time and your craft, right? He was like a samurai with a sword. You know, you, you learn your craft over time. Now, if you're a player who's functioning in chaos, different coaches, different people around you all the time, you don't get to that level of detail. Like no one gets better in France, right? You go to play for a French club, you're just adapting to too much. So, so I'm, I, I have this really interesting um, thing I've been working on, which is do cohesive teams make players better or does it allow them to make themselves better? And does it actually help them produce talent? So Australia used to have three of the top five cohesive teams in the world. We don't have one in the top 10 now. So where's all the talent coming out of? It's Ireland now, right? Mm. But the schools don't aren't functioning that different. But so what's what's the difference now that all of a sudden this talent seems to be coming from all these places? So
0: what what is what is the answer about Ireland? Why why are they able to reach down and bring up more talent from within and have it be um, coherent? like you know the way hookers play, the way flanks play? I watch a lot of schools rugby in Ireland. And yep. they're actually playing like the national team. The, the hookers play like, you know, Sheehan.
2: <laughs> what, what I would say is that that um, once they shifted to that model, the four-club model, hmm. and then once they stopped looking at players outside the country as in allowing players to go out and then come back, which the Welsh have done, and it's, <laughs> you could see it's sort of affecting them over time, and said, right, we're just going to focus inside the house. And then once they started to get their academy teams organised, like this thing takes years. Mm. But one of the biggest things that's interesting, and we looked at this with English football, is the stability of the team above you is a huge driver of the ability of the academy to produce talent. So it's yeah. not actually it's not actually about that our schools are that much better than they used to be. I mean, Australian schools aren't that much better or worse. I mean, our schoolboys used to get belted by the All Blacks, and they still do. Right in, in the under, in the in the schoolboys, it's I remember Jonah Lomu and Wilson just tearing us apart. But it's, it's actually how those players then get absorbed into the national system, which, which mm-hmm. in Ireland, it's pretty strong um, and it's also top-heavy. Leinster gets the rub of the green, as they should. You don't want evenness in the system. You actually want it to be dominant, dominated by a certain club because that allows the national team to do better.
0: Rugby. On the roar.
1: Ben, I sort of glossed over your transition from, from player to coach, and obviously the the quick transition there was caused by your your neck injury. I'll come back to that. What I wanted to actually ask you was how did Gain Line come about as an idea? When when did you first come onto this idea of cohesion as a factor within team sports?
2: So post injury, I'd bounced around a number of places coaching. And one of the things I quickly realized was, like, I'd go to one club. Like, I think in Japan I lost three games in two years. And I was coaching at the Western Force, and I think we won one game, you know, in the first year. So, <laughs> like, I was going and I, you know, coached at North. My first coaching experience, the team went zero and 16. And I'm like, oh, man, do I suck that much? So <laughs> um, I'd go different places and realize. And I coached at Suntory. S- Suntory went undefeated the entire season. Um, and I... I basically you started to understand that the ability of myself to make a difference was, was not as strong as I might have thought it to be. And then also I was coached by some guys that you'd go, oh my God, he's a genius and you don't win. And coached by other guys, you're like, he can barely put a sentence together and he's won everything. Like, how is this <laughs> yeah. possible, right? Yeah. So I'm like, okay, well, it's not as much coaching as, you, as I believed it to be. And then I started to look at, at when I started to become a data analyst, I was looking at a lot of the data people were using in games and about KPIs and stuff like that. And, um, and I wasn't getting to the heart of anything. And, and I got asked by the rebels, how long is it going to take for us to win? So I just kind of then went and did this study and looked at experience as a driver of success. So for example, the Panthers this year, yeah. uh, sorry, last year when they won the comp, they had the second youngest team in the comp. So youth lack of experience is actually not, I think it's mistaken when it's brought forward as an idea about teams winning or not winning. Um, it's, it's, you know, there's a term in English football. They said you can't win with kids. And then with Man United, they did exactly that, right? They won yeah. with kids. So, so um, I started looking at all other studies I could find on this as a topic. And then I started looking at portability of talent and portability of talent out of, some guy was doing work on it at Harvard Business School, they stockbroking stock firms. So then I started looking at military data, hospital data, airline data, wow. shared experience. So almost all the research we found wasn't in sport. We just applied it to sport. And we came back to, and we put it to football, for example. And football was telling us the average player takes three years to hit their peak when they change clubs. But it had three components. The first one is like, where are they coming from? So the better the club you come from, the worse you do when you move. Right. So, you, right. so they call this in rugby league, they call it the Melbourne Storm mirage, or in in um, in uh, in football, they call it the Bayern Munich mirage. You take a player out of a great team, you put them into another one, and they can't replicate. Yeah. There's Certain conditions yeah. we found you can, but. It's very hard to do. The second part is what is the position of the person? So in football, strikers can change clubs more easily than midfielders or defenders. See that thing about goalkeepers you were talking about before, like having a solid back three, Mm. you know, is a really common aspect of successful successful teams. And the third part is what is the club you go to? So the more stable the team you go into, the easier it is to be absorbed into that environment. You look at young guys in Australia going to the Crusaders, they come back ready to play tests, right? Yeah, yeah. But don't play so well when they come back to an Australian club again. So um, if if the club you're going to is stable, it's easy. You just get on the wing and they go, you just do this role, and it's really, really simple. Whereas if you're going to chaos, it's like they're going to work at a restaurant and they're like, dude, we don't even know it's on the menu because the coach just the, – the, the the head chef just got fired, right? Just, just watch <laughs> yeah. everyone else and we'll make it up as we go along, right? Yeah. That's what some clubs are like. So. The really good clubs too—they get to a level of detail in their execution. I remember talking to someone at the Melbourne Storm and he and I, he'd been to a lot of other clubs, and I said, "What's it like?" And he said, "We finish training, then we all sit down, we watch the video, and we go over the detail of our hand position and foot position on the on the drills. Like no one does that. Wow. No one, you know. Yeah. But but they can do that because everything else is in place.
1: Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, of course.
2: You you're coaching the Barbarians, you're like. It's just run three plays, same way, whatever. You know, we just can't get yeah. to that level of detail. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. so this accumulates over time. You know. Yeah. So you, so you been- started. You started
1: it whilst you were coaching at the Rebels. At which point did you start thinking about other sports and whether, the, and whether the principles would would carry over, or were you always thinking that if this works in one sport, it would have to work in another?
2: It started at the Rebels, and then the Rebels had some financial challenges and said, "We can't afford." You to be here so i went to yeah. Tour in japan uh end of the first season we went undefeated but i was fired so i'm like oh uh, i just I, coaching sucks right so i'm like <laughs> w- what do you do when you when you um because you have no control right yeah no control yeah. over what's happening so you know what do you do when you're unemployed you start a consultancy business so i started i actually started the business looking at selling player data to french clubs on player availability so i built this database of every league and union player in the world who was coming off contract and as I built it, I started to notice something about the teams because the way I right. built the data, I built it visually. I'm a very visual person. I have ADHD. I just look at things a certain way. And I was like, wow, look at the Crusaders profile. Look at this. Look at the Highlanders profile when they brought all those All Blacks in 13. So that was about that 13 period as well. And then there was a particular club we were talking to in the UK, and, and, they're, and they were saying to us, we're going to gut the whole starting 15, and we want you to help us do it and bring some players in. And we're like, okay, cool. And then they came back to us and said, Sorry, the owners put the club up for sale. All contracts are frozen. So we knew at that point they didn't want the guys they had. The next year they made the semi finals, right? They went from like second last to <laughs> in the finals. They were like with the team that they didn't, the team they didn't, didn't want, want, right? So yeah, how does this happen? So so a lot of the time, cohesion will go up because of an accident or a country will dissolve or a political system yeah. would break down or there's a war or like um, Yugoslavia, particularly when that broke up into Serbia and Croatia, did much better in sport than. Yugoslavia um, you know an interesting thing happened to rugby in the 20s in Australia I don't know if you know Queensland did not exist in the 1920s yes. Yes. so New South Wales played as Australia and we we beat the All Blacks 44% of the time as opposed to the, the 15% of the time before and then we went yeah. back yeah. we went back to the old system and we started losing again so and this is not about Queensland this is just about about what are the drivers, right? What are the drivers of the decisions? So No, mate, I
1: heard Queensland always existed, even before time. <laughs> it's it's actually it's actually a point of conjecture because Queensland are celebrating a major milestone this year. And it was sort of subtly pointed, well, hang on, what about didn't, yeah. didn't exist? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. But so anyway.
0: in the in the big band theory uh, of statistics, yeah I'm still trying to find the right ones. <laughs> that's what he's officially calling. Well, the, well, the cause, cause also, too,
2: is we have, we have staff too. So I'll... how it,
0: how it, it tick tocks. Do you actually like, like look at something and kind of find a rhythm, a pattern, a shape that's anomalous. And then you sort of like dig in Dell. Why is that? You know, why does the civil war help uh, rugby players play better, whatever? Um, or do you look at sort of the obvious and say, let's build from the obvious. Like, uh, you know, the fact that you have, you know, locking partners and midfield partners that stay together a long time tends to breed success. How do you build your hypotheses, I guess, in your statistics? Are you just looking for things that don't make sense or looking for things that do?
2: So so we first of all start off with this notion of the teams built from within. We found a way mm-hmm. to measure that. And then we would found teams that were building from within and weren't winning, trying to understand what was causing, what 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 statistics were around that. And that became around what we call gaps. So... If you have a team of 15, if 10 of them have been together for a long time but five of them are new, they'll be dysfunctional based on that five.
1: Because okay. the way the yeah.
2: relationships work is it's actually not five people. It's like it's half – if you have five people are you, half the team is basically dysfunctional. Yeah, Sort of, sort of New Zealand in the first half on Saturday because they, they joined the Chiefs and the Crusaders together, but it was a True. bit sort of between those which made them so dysfunctional. So they had five catastrophic gaps on the field in that first half that we didn't have, that five more than we had. We didn't actually have any catastrophic. Anyway, um, uh, so, so what, we'll, what we keep doing is keep trying to find the examples of when the hypothesis we have is wrong, and then, we, and then we go and look at that. So the Vegas Knights, for example, in the NHL is the first team that ever made the playoffs in their first year yeah. in a non-expansion competition, right? So we try to understand what's going on, why, how are they built differently, how do they build them, but we just bring it down to data. So on a per-game basis now in rugby league, we have 1,800 pieces of data per game on cohesion,
1: That's right? Bloody hell.
2: So it might be how long have you played with, with someone, how long you played in those positions, how long you played, you know. One of the interesting things we found that, that there was a grand final in the NRL between um, the Roosters and the Melbourne Storm, and we found – one of the differences between the two teams was that Cooper Cronk had played for the storm. And so it was his understanding with the players he was against. It was like, he was Ah, calling them. Yeah. Right. You know, he was calling them. And then we actually met with Trent Robertson. he had a different view, which was, he felt as though the storm was so worried about that. They played differently to adapt to Cooper Cronk's knowledge of them. Right. So it was like a really interesting conversation. So, Um, But one of the the things we found, there there was games that were not making sense to us in league and union where the teams were cohesive and they weren't winning. So in Super Rugby, for example, it's about 85% of the games are won by the most cohesive team. But even in the ones that we get wrong, it might be there's a red card or a yellow card or, you know, there's injuries and the numbers will actually change. But these ones were just like making no sense whatsoever. And then there was like 300 of them in total. And and we looked at NRL, we looked at uh, AFL a little bit as well. And I I wonder if, I don't know if you, if Harry's heard this before, but, but Harry, what do you think we found about the teams who weren't winning games when they should have? What do you think Um, was wrong with them?
0: Their, their kit was uh, horrible to look at. It was clashing color styles, turquoise.
2: (laughs) That's the closest
1: anyone's ever gotten. Jersey oh. chat, Jersey chat. Yeah. <laughs> now this, now this. Harry is where I must confess that Ben and I had this conversation the other the other day. Yeah. And I said, fantastic. We've been having all sorts of Jersey chat. We need to get into this. <laughs> so, this, so this is the whole thing, isn't it? So alternate strips, uh, like Kryptonite to good teams. Is that, is that what you're saying? So, you, so, really
2: so yeah. So what basically happened was, what
1: I was right. Know, oh, yeah, you're yeah. right. <laughs> yes. I
0: was trying to be silly. No. <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh wow! Okay. I, i'm not going to swear but come on harry you know bloody hell all right Sorry. so so I like people never get people never get this they've never got it right they all say oh you know, I had the wrong attitude and i'm like no these are teams who are winning so what we found was we we tried to apply a rule to it which is you know sometimes you'll have um an indigenous jersey or something like that where it's actually yeah. the same color but it's just a different design yeah. that didn't yeah. seem to ruin them right it was when they changed the color Okay, mm. but the thing about the games was the teams were only underperforming on attack, not on defence. Right, and so mm. I asked guys. I asked Sterling Mortlock and Danny Badiris, who were both ball players. I wasn't a ball player, so I didn't experience any of this. <laughs> but they said you go to look to your teammate and you flinch because you're looking for a colour. Yeah. Okay. Right? Yeah. And so we looked at those games, and the offload data was off. They were passing to the opposition. Um, in fact, there's a great game between the Broncos and Melbourne Storm, where ex Broncos player on the storm, passes it to a Broncos player. It's an intercept and he scores down the other end. The guy's actually calling for it from him. But but um, so there's so many examples of this, but a great one was Darren Coleman, who's the Waratahs coach now, yeah. was coaching at Gordon and they went undefeated through the season, except when they came to play North for their centenary and they wore a white jersey to celebrate their centenary and it was like 24 to three or something. I was like, they got blanked, oh, like it was bad. Wow. And he, yeah. and he said at the end of the game, they were coming off and the players were saying something was wrong, like something didn't feel right. Um, uh, Newcastle Knights wear a high-vis jersey to celebrate yeah. the uh, Hunter undermining. mining. mining. Yep. And so, so I think they've won one out of nine in that jersey, but it's hard to tell with the Knights because they're <laughs> not always winning games anyway. So, um, but, but here's the interesting one is that um, France have not beaten the All Blacks in a black jersey now in like 20 years. So all the times France have beaten them in the last 20 years it's been in a in an off color all black jersey
1: or a gray so, or a so white it's, or so it's silver or the white or the yeah and so, so the normal
2: a, a normal game between France and New Zealand I don't have the numbers in front of me but it's something like 37 to 15 to to New Zealand when they when when the All Blacks play in a white jersey it's 25 22 okay wow. and when and when um the France wear their white jersey, it's like thirty-seven to ten. It's
1: mm. like a big difference. So, so So there's no coincidence here in France in a home world cup producing a home strip that is as dark a blue as I can find to force the change.
2: <laughs> I, I don't know whether they, they, they don't know about this work, but um we had a team once play in a grand final, their board wanted to wear a special jersey for the grand final. They're like, Nope, we're not doing that. So um, but it's interesting because in this World Cup, let me let me check this. Right, fascinating. In this World Cup, there is the top the top teams from uh, I think France and France and um, New Zealand going to play each other. Yep. So one of them yep. have to wear an alternate jersey. Yeah. Uh, who's in the other pool? I apologise. The next pool. Uh, South, South Africa and Ireland. Ireland. South Africa and Ireland. They have to wear. Yeah. And Green then. Green. And then Argentina and, and England. So the yep, top yeah. two from each pool, except ours, will have an alternate game, right? And that may have an impact. I'm not going to say it's going to decide it, but it <coughs> has an impact. an impact.
0: Yep.
1: that's that's incredible. It's so listener. Uh, obviously,
0: in the I'm the still I'm still of, reeling
2: the- from the fact you picked that, Harry. It's upsetting.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, no, I was I'm- trying to I was trying to think of something uh, in stupid like a crazy uh, uh, solution. No, so. So, you know, the coherence idea, you, know, you look at the place you play. There are places where teams play better than other places. And it doesn't always correspond with where those players live. For example, like if you wanted to win every match, if you're a Springbok, you'd actually play in uh, Port Elizabeth. would be the best, uh, the best place to play. But it's not, it's not Pretoria, actually. Um, even Well, though well there's, no- there's
2: an easy answer to that, isn't there, surely? Oh, what
0: is it? That's what, well, they they
2: play weak they'll play weak teams in Port Elizabeth. It's the same with Suncorp. Like I looked they had the same thing where they said uh, Suncorp okay. Suncorp is, is the home Port of Australia. Fortress? It's like, yeah. well, how many times have we actually played the All Blacks there? And if we yeah, do, we right. play them in the fourth game, right? right? So generally your best field will be um your your B, where you necessarily are either in a dead rubber or hmm. so you don't put your best team up or they play against Argentina or Ireland or something like that. So yeah. that would be my that'll be my best guess. I mean Um, You know, one thing we found, for example, was when teams toured in Super Rugby, their first week was actually the weakest and they got better as the tour went. Yeah. They went up by five percent. see that so often. I noticed that, yeah, yeah. And then then the other thing was that when, you know, they did a study in English football and they found that the biggest impact of crowds was not on the players but on the referees. Yeah. And so the referee for each 10,000 people in the crowd would be more biased towards the home team. So Mm. once you removed the crowds... The referee bias stopped, and the and the um, and the home team winning stopped as well. So I'm not saying that's absolutely definitive because yeah. obviously home crowds have impact on on players, but um, certainly they had a big impact on penalty count. If you ever look at state of origin, Queensland uh, get a much stronger penalty count than New South Wales do at home. And of course, yeah. you look at France where <laughs> the referee doesn't feel comfortable to leave the stadium or the car park. <laughs> you know, and there's like a seventy eight percent seventy eight percent winning record there for the home team. Yeah, and you had the lab
0: experiment of COVID where you had empty stadiums. It was very bizarre. Like that little subset yeah. of stats will be studied and added for an item, you know, that two year period of time it. where you, you had quiet stadiums.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, so what? So what did you learn out of that little little period, Ben? What did you learn about your numbers that suddenly just didn't apply?
2: Well, it wasn't. Um, uh, what it did is actually shorten the seasons. Yeah. So it meant that the non-cohesive teams couldn't come back. So of the nine, of the nine competitions we're measuring that year, eight of them were won by the number one cohesion team at the start of the season.
1: Right. Mm.
2: Right. So co- because it, it's when it's a shorter tournament, they can't back end it. It's, and so yeah. one thing, for example, in Australia, you have is you have finals, so it allows a team to be terrible at the start of the year, and if they could, be, we call it back ending. You can improve through the season. You can actually make it. You can put together a competitive team. Over yep. the season and then you can improve And so you see that a little bit in World Cups for example with France and, and um, England you know like 07 You know England got smashed And then they came back pretty nicely South Africa uh, Wasn't very well built in 15 they lost to Japan Who had better numbers than them That's probably one of my favourite statistics Is the yeah, Japanese yeah, numbers actually had a more cohesive team against South Africa um, And yet you know a couple of weeks later they they Played pretty well against New Zealand so um, the teams will improve during the year, but you generally need at least 10 weeks to 20 yeah. weeks to start to put something together. So that's the, that's the challenge for Eddie is trying to put something together as fast as humanly possible. Um, I don't know if you saw the other day, way I described it on Twitter is like Eddie's, it's like Eddie's trying to go to a wedding and he's organizing the wedding on the way to the wedding. It's yeah, like he's trying to. He's calling everyone, trying to get them organised. So he's doing yeah. it on the run. That's I think that's why the the term "smash and grab" is such a good turn of phrase.
1: It's a great analogy. He 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 name dropped you early on. He talked about Ben Darwin made a living out of it because he had to make a living out of something. Was that yeah? Was was yeah. was that, was that a uh, was it was it a backhanded compliment or is he actually a, a, a devotee of the theory?
2: I mean, we've we've had lots and lots of conversations with Eddie, and he's yeah. he's certainly a devotee of the theory, and he's got certain ideas about Australian rugby. But he's never not given a backhanded compliment in his life, so that's normal for him. That's his <laughs> that's his go to play. So I had him as a coach for seven years, and and I always said I would never have played for Australia uh, without him being my coach. So but he has
1: yeah. he has he has no forehand; he's all backhand. Yep.
2: Yeah, true.
1: Was he would he would have been coaching at Suntory when you were there? Is as, it? As as no, coach? he was
2: he was like a. Uh, he was involved in Santori, but he was a Japanese yeah, coach at the right. time. Yeah, but yeah. I had him at the Brumbies and I had him at the Wallabies. So yeah, from '97 till 03. Yep.
1: Yeah, yeah. Ben, this has been—it's been—it's been, fa- it's, it's been absolutely fascinating, and we could keep going on this for hours. We're not going to do that. I want to ask one thing before we do le- let you go. It's 20 years this year since since the injury. Do you? I mean, it's life changing injury. There's no other way of putting it. But do you look back on that and think about? what you've got out of rugby and out of sport because you were forced into doing something else?
2: Actually, Because they're actually doing the reunion in a couple of weeks. Yeah. Uh, you know. Um, so for me, like it was – there's a number of different things that came about because of it. Like it was a really hard time and I felt really guilty because I wasn't injured because I met guys who were quadriplegics.
1: Yes. So I had a bit yeah. to do
2: with people. I met a guy in the hospital – the week after I was injured and he was like learning to reuse his hands again and he's mm. sitting there with his wife. And so I saw guys like that and I'm like, you know, I'm not religious, but there for the grace of God, you know, go I. I've had four kids since. Yeah. Um, I'm I'm pretty lucky in that as a prop, I didn't play a long time. You, know, you probably think oh, I was playing tests at 24, you know, I probably would have tried to give it a long go. And so I'm pretty thankful in a way, like my body and my head are still Functional, you know, yeah, I, I can, yeah, so I'm, yeah, I'm yeah. you look at poor Carl Heyman, cause he was kind of the, we were together at the same, yeah. you know, we were playing around the same set of time. Um, when you get injured in the way that I did, I was talking to Pat, Pat McCabe about this yeah. is that you, you, you know, your career is never so retrospectively praised as it is when you have an injury, like everyone will tell you <laughs> afterwards, you could have been anything and they can't question it now. Right yeah um yeah. you know I was a bit part bit part player in a couple of magnificent teams, and i I kind of got to understand that. but the thing for me has been is that I really love about my job is going from playing to coaching, you grow in the experience you have as a player and you understand what it's like to be the least skillful player in a team, so to speak, so that helps you as a coach and then and then I use that knowledge as an analyst to basically just question everything in yeah. analytics. And then I use that knowledge as an analyst. Now take it into the job we have now because you can sit with the analyst, we can sit with the coach or the board member or the player and say, "This is what I experienced. Is this, you know, is this your experiences?" And then if it's not, tell me where I've got it wrong, and then we explore that and we see if we can research that. And so, um, most guys, when you retire from rugby, you go to Macquarie Bank and you're 20 years behind the guy you ever school with. Is now the chairman of the board, whereas I've yeah. got to grow into this next and so we do corporate we work with um you know number of different sports working in formula one now for example and when i have those sort of conversations i just sit there and go like how how am i here how am i at this english football club how am i working with this team um and and we get to tell them some we get to tell those owners or the 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 um the coaches something about their team they don't know that's a lot of fun that's that's a really amazing experience
1: yeah, mate. It has been it has been absolutely fascinating. It's been absolutely fantastic to have a chat to you. Um, it's gone so quick. I hope hope you've enjoyed it. We would absolutely love to have you back on uh, at some point. Maybe even during the World Cup if you're if you're up for it. Thanks so much for giving us some some time this week.
2: That's a pleasure, guys. Really enjoyed it.
1: Cheers, Ben. The roar. Harry, just fantastic to have. Ben Darwin, it's a it's a chat we've probably been wanting to have for a little while now, and uh, yeah, very very much worth the wait, wasn't it? That was great.
0: Yeah, props are always the most interesting players, eh? Um, (laughs) I do I do think like we should we should think about how um, the cohesion that we have between you and I on this podcast is. Turns out (laughs) that's really important.
1: I was going to. I had the question in the back of my mind at one point, saying, "So, we we think we're potting better now because we've done." hundred episodes together, but is that actually the case? But he, that he <laughs> we may not have liked the answer. It might have been. It might have. Been, it, really, it might have really undone us. I, I, I don't know. Maybe. Maybe we'll ask him that next time. Maybe we will. Uh, lived a little bit of a few results from the weekend. Um, South Africa beat Argentina in the end on Sunday morning. That was the result that we uh, that we touched on, but didn't obviously know uh, on, on the instant reaction on Sunday afternoon, 24 fourth, thirteen in Buenos Aires in the. The Battle of the Alternate Strips. Speaking of the topic of, <laughs> of Ben's, the Pacific Nations Cup uh, over the weekend, Samoa beat Tonga 34 9 in Apia. Japan lost to Fiji 35 12 at the Prince Chichibu in Tokyo. Uh, where it was the home of the Sun Wolves, you might remember. Um, Fiji just keep rolling along, don't they? They're,
0: they're, they're going to be a yeah. dangerous side. They are looking tough.
1: They are going to be a dangerous side. The Summer Nations series uh, started on the weekend. Um, Scotland beat France 25-21 at Murrayfield. Wales beat England, as I mentioned, at the top 20 points to nine uh, in Cardiff at Ireland beat italy 33 uh 17 england and wales play again this weekend france and scotland have another hit as well so that's um another layer of warm-up games a little bit of news from the last couple of days seven days so mate um early last week uh, the reds queensland reds announced that james o'connor has re-signed for another i think another two years but there's a coaching transition element to that and he'll be involved in uh some pathways programs and i think even um, the uh, the Australian under twenties or junior Wallabies something like that. So it's uh, good to see his transition happening. But they've also signed an ex Blues and uh, played one or two tests for the All Blacks, Alex Hodgman, which yeah. is a, a good pickup, I think, as well. So good to see him running around again. Um, you may have noticed over the weekend names on the back of jerseys. Ireland <laughs> did it. Wales did it. England did it. Uh, no, just just no. Just I want
0: nicknames. I want to be like soccer, like Brazil would have, like you know, the junior or something. Like I, I think it'd be fun. To have <laughs> nicknames.
1: I, I did a. Uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That that would be something, wouldn't it? Uh, Samoa, uh, Samoa, and Romania are among the last teams to release their their World Cup jerseys, and they are fantastic. They look absolutely outstanding. Samoa named their squad on Sunday, actually, and the headline is. The three or four ex All Blacks that have been named in it, uh, Christian Le Fana yeah. obviously has, has been playing for them as well, and they're on a bit of a roll somehow. So they, I think, they're ready to to cause some trouble. New Zealand and England named their World Cup squads on Monday. I didn't see any huge surprise in that New Zealand squad. What did What did you think?
0: No, I mean, obviously, Camroy Guard gets in over Brad Weber. Um, yeah. Luke Jacobson makes the, the loose forward bench. Uh, it's kind of they. it was kind of taking shape all along. Um uh, yeah. it looks like a yeah. hell of a squad. I think yep. England's squad is probably a few more wrinkles in there and it and it I think England is the one that, that doesn't look like they're shaping up in, in just the right time. So yeah. Um that again, you know, if that if that's Australia's quarterfinal uh enemy or foe, um it, it does speak well for Wallabies because I just don't think England's got, I don't know, they haven't seemed to be able to find anything new at all. So Yeah, see.
1: yeah. Uh, Henry Slay and Alex Dombrandt missing out with, with the big headlines um, in the England yeah. squad reveal, certainly. And that's uh, it's going to cause some, some debate for a little while. Uh, no doubt about that. The Australian squad will be named on Thursday. Uh, can you believe this, mate? But in theory, once we throw in all the instant reactions and everything else that we did, over the last 18 months, this is actually our 100th episode. Wow. That's amazing. <laughs> there's, a, there's a little milestone that will just hit you between the eyes. Oh, we will actually do something around the 100th of these weekly pods when that milestone does come around. But we do need to acknowledge the mark. And we do – there is a huge thank you to everyone who listened in and has left ratings and reviews and has got in touch to say how much you love it. Uh, our audience has grown – so extraordinarily in the last 18 months all because of you the listener and well now you the viewer if you like the idea of talking heads on a youtube clip well you can go to the (laughs) raw's youtube page and you can watch us hit that Floats your boat, so um, you can you can enjoy uh, our last couple of chats, the last couple of instant reactions are, are there on the the Raws uh, YouTube page as well. But mate, I think that is us done for episode seventy four of the Raw Rugby Podcast, powered by Asics. Don't forget, uh, Harry and I are on the socials. We're both on Insta and now Threads, uh, as well as whatever's left of Twitter or whatever the hell Elon's calling it this week. If you can leave a rating and review, please do leave one on your pod platform. Of choice, And also, don't forget to like, follow, subscribe and ensure you get everything as soon as it goes live. It's the Raw Rugby Podcast with me, Brett McKay and Harry Jones. Every week on theraw.com.au, Australia's biggest sporting debate. The home of all your favourite international rugby analysis, opinions and conversations. A reminder that you may only have hours to nominate your picks for the Raw's greatest ever Wallabies World Cup 15. Find the Short Loss Listing Pods on your favorite platform. Jump onto the site before midnight on August 8th and have your say. And it's all thanks to ASICS, the official performance apparel and footwear partner of the Wallabies. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in your ears next week.
0: Come cohere with us.